Jerusalem Ridge from uh, Mark O'Connor's fine CD, Heroes, here on KPTZ, where we're welcoming two gentlemen, Wes Cecil, Ph.D., and Milo Redwood, the professor and the madman. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Yeah, and just by way of introduction here, uh, I know that both of you <laughs> have been around for a while. Many people know you, but... Uh, those that are streaming particularly may not. So I'm going to tell a little bit of background. Milo, Milo Redwood, who I'm looking at right now, is a student of philosophy, particularly Greek philosophy, a painter and a singer. I just found out about the painting part. I looked at your website. Very, very nice. Very nice. He's a student of language and word entomologies. Most importantly, and what do you guess, because Wes wrote this, what do you guess is the most important Okay, I'm going to leave it alone because that's, that's a pretty, casting a pretty wide net. Most importantly, he owns a complete set of the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> yeah, and so... <laughs> I just threw that in. Oh, that's funny. I didn't know that. I was just saying, that's perfect. Now, is your mic on Milo? Say something. Ah, I don't hear anything. Do you? I don't hear it. No, no, no. Okay, so we got to work on that. This is not the first time that's happened. Anyone who's listened to Toss Salad <laughs> knows that that does occasionally happen. Let me try this one. Uh-huh. There you go. Yeah. There's my yeah. one. All right. Okay. There we go. Okay. We're set. Grand tradition to Toss Salad that we don't get these things right the first time. Moving on to, uh, to Wes Cecil. He's a student of language and literature and uh, has a Ph.D. in English from Indiana University, interested in literature, philosophy, history, and gardening. For the last 16 years, he's been teaching at Peninsula College. When he's not working, reading, or writing, he spends much of his time in his garden, which I just saw a picture of you on your website. You're sitting in the garden. It oh. reminded me of the last scene of The Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, oh, and that's, that's neither here nor there. Of recent lectures, an introduction to thinking was America founded as a Christian nation. So, uh, <laughs> I no no stranger to controversial topics. Um, people in town may know you from your lecture series, or also from your work with uh, Peninsula College. Sixteen years is a long time. A lot of young minds uh, influenced, I'm sure. So, let's talk a little bit about what we're doing here. How does that sound? <laughs> okay, why not? Okay. This is The Professor and the Madman. You can take your pick on which is which. There may be some crossover here. <laughs> uh, the Professor and the Madman is an ongoing exploration of philosophy and its application to the modern world in the form of a dialogue. Together, we hope to present a different take on the key philosophical issues we all face in our lives. So here's a question. Why are we doing this? Why is that important? Well, I, it was Milo and I were just chatting about this today. But just as an example, one that, that we've been thinking about, I've been thinking about, is this whole concept of guilt. And we take the notion of guilt for granted. But is there any – can you think of any example of guilt in the Greek classics? Any? No. no uh, guilt, the, the etymology – I probably mentioned this, but the etymology is, is very obscure. And it, it seems like it goes to crime. Yeah. Uh, but the guilt, when we talk about guilt now, it's much different. I mean, it seems like our guilt is 
more uh, mysterious. Yeah, and so that it's clear that historically the philosophical history of it is this comes to us from Christianity, which has this idea of original sin, which means that even before you're born, you're already guilty of something, which is a crazy idea. When you, if you think about it, is you're being held responsible for something you could not possibly affect because you might not have even been alive. Right. And yet... People, we have this concept of guilt that just runs through our culture. And so one reason, one use of philosophy is to be able to try and think through that. Because if you look at a cultural history that's different from ours, the, the, the Greek classics um, or the Roman classics, the Chinese classics, the Hindu classics, that, I mean, do you, like I said, I can't think of a single reference that has anything even you know remotely equivalent to the idea of guilt right yeah you could let yourself down and experience shame but to have a, a this yeah dark or mysterious guilt uh as if you're some kind of a disease on the earth that's just to the greek mind they wouldn't know what you're talking about yeah, they wouldn't know. And, and so when you read greek philosophy i mean the that concern with guilt or with avoiding guilt or getting your sins expiated, again, I just, it doesn't, it really, it's not there. And so when we f- look at some of the problems or issues that come up, our responses, our problems are conditioned by our culture, but so are our responses. And so it's hard to come up with solutions for things when, you know, the, the they may not even be real. Right. I mean... Slave, we were talking about the whole slavery issue the other day. Yeah. Yeah, the sla- I mean, the guilt, it, it works on, uh, a mysterious guilt works well for an enslaved community because it, it keeps you down. It doesn't give you anything to work from uh, or to stand on. So if I can teach you when you're a little kid that you're basically your existence is a sort of crime. Uh, basically you're utterly controlled. So it seems to me like there's a lot riding on the, the master slave and then that middle ground, which is delightful to me, which the, is called the freeborn. Uh, I think you'll find it in Plato's Republic, but it's, it's for people, they don't want to be slaves and they don't want to be masters. Um, they want to fall in the middle. They don't want to boss anyone around, but they'd rather be dead than to be a slave. And that would put you in the freeborn my closest friends are free. <laughs> well, and this is this is one of the, the you can think about it educationally as well is because the much of the Greek education educational philosophy, which was all homeschool until you were an adult anyway, was to train you that you that it was better to die than to be a slave. Yeah. Basically, that's that you didn't want to have anybody have control of you in that sense. Um, and so not fit in, not get along, but don't be dominated. And so rather than worrying about things like guilt and that we have so much or, or they really looked at it as a, uh, how do I make myself big and free? Yeah. Not small. Yeah. And then of course, then you have savior. Well, then you have comes the, right in there. Well, right. And then once you have guilt, the concept of guilt, well, now you want some way to be relieved of the guilt. And the notion is, well, if it's amorphous and has nothing to do with you actually as a person, you didn't do anything to be guilty of it, then you need some outside force 
that's going to make it okay. And is it strange? We, we were actually talking about this the other day in the terms of, you know, people say, oh, we, f- we, we feel bad, we feel guilty about the slave history of the United States of America, which is bizarre because there's nobody alive today who owned slaves or caused the slave history to exist. It doesn't mean you – in fact, I would argue that it prevents us from addressing actual problems today, even some which may be a result of that tradition, which certainly exists. But you don't – why – how does it help to feel bad about something you had no control over and you can't do anything about? Oh, I know how it makes you feel better. <laughs> it makes you not have to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it allows you to just take the sideline and go on with the way things are instead of uh, yeah. making things more beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's a type perfect. of – it's a type of quietism. Yeah. Because you can just go, well, I feel bad sort of maybe, but structurally I feel bad. I feel guilty, and there's nothing I can do about it, so I don't have to act. Yeah, yeah. There's there, this is a. It's really profound uh, in the old English. Now, when I think of Savior, of course, I think of the word Jesus, and in the old English, you, you, good luck finding the word Jesus in old English. You won't find it. You'll find Healand, and what's really odd is Healand, which does go to healer. Uh, I believe it would be in the 1400s, probably 1450 in there. Um, there was a choice made. They could have gone either with healer or savior. And for whatever reason, uh, the writers went with, the scribes went with the savior. And that was a huge fork. And it's really hard to find anything on it. You'll find bits and pieces on it. But that was huge to go from calling Jesus healer or savior. If you think about the drama implied with the word savior... Versus a healer. Yeah, it's a, yeah. conceptually, this is the guilt issue. A healer heals. If you have a broken leg, a healer can heal you. If, you have, if you're sort of psychologically or emotionally damaged, a healer can make you feel better. But a savior helps you with all those things that are abstract. Yeah. Right? You can't. There's no concrete. It's a very strange. It's a different concept. Where does the word savior come from? I don't know the origins. Of oh, that. They, that, I'm not so sure. I just remember looking up Jesus in the OED and it, and it going to healing, uh, which it's really profound. Yeah, it's really profound. The difference in healing. There's less drama to a healer. A healer just hopefully heals from the inside out slowly, beautifully, but slowly. A savior grabs you from the flames of hell. It's way, yeah. you know. Which is another big difference in philosophical history is cultures that have no sense either of a afterlife or of an afterlife that has anything to do with what you do in this life. Um, so, you know, Confucius, who apparently believed in some form of spirits, just said it has nothing to do with us, right? You don't worry about it because they're spirits. They don't have anything to do with us. The Greeks believed in a sort of vague afterlife, but everybody went there. So it had nothing to do with anything you did and everybody said it was terrible. It didn't matter if you were great in this life or terrible in this life, your next life was terrible. It just wasn't fun because you weren't alive and the clear thing to do with the Greeks was to be alive. The Romans had virtually none. Um, but yeah, so even when we think about things like uh, forgiveness, most cultures don't have anything approaching what we think of because there's no chance of going to hell so forgiveness in the sense of some big metaphysical crisis is 
non-existent. Well, I'm going to be very economical with my questions <laughs> here. But of that, which culture won out? Which are we closest to in our own culture? Oh, I would argue. I mean, I don't have, without hesitating, I think I would agree with Milo on this one. Even if you do not believe in religion, it doesn't matter. Our worldview is so shaped by that tradition of guilt and sin and afterlife and forgiveness and salvation that uh, our, our language is just rife with. Oh, here's an example. Would you agree with that, though, Milo? Oh, I mean, sure. So just if you think of the word virtue, we tend to think of it as being the opposite of vice. That's a Christian reading. In both Latin and Chinese, the words for virtue in Latin, it's virtuous. Uh, in Chinese, I forget, jin, uh, I think. I, I forget the word. I think it's jin. Um, there is no opposite of virtue. There, it's just, it's like, it's like the, the virtue of water is that it helps your thirst. The virtue of um, paper is you can write a note. The virtue of a person is that they can help you out or they're a friend or something. But there's no contrary countervailing vice that is a threat or a shame or a challenge to it. But if we say something, if we say there's a virtue, we think, oh, there's an opposite of it. And for both in the Latin and the Chinese, just as an example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, where do you see the, Milo, the uh, influence? I was just one that sprang to mind. Yeah, no, I think you, you, you got it. Yeah, you, I couldn't add to that. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, just it's so. Where else do you see the influence? I mean, it's just everywhere. So pervasive, it's hard. <laughs> Let's. Where do we not? Where do you not see this? Really, yeah. it's yeah. so. Yeah. Um, when people want forgiveness or things, when people want, um, I mean, uh, trying to. Yeah. When you when is it not pervasive? Um, I, I guess here's another example: is the whole notion of turning the other cheek. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> I mean, by the way, we have the largest military in the world and the largest military the world has ever seen. So on one hand, we do not follow this at all. On the other hand, we do have this cultural idea that, well, you know, if someone hits you, you know, you turn the other cheek. I always say for the Greeks, the only reason they would turn the other cheeks is because they were temporarily incapable of strangling you. But the second they were going to be able to strangle you, they would strangle you. Yeah. yeah. There. See now. That's that, in my mind. That's evidence of a of a slave mentality. A slave doesn't have a choice but to turn the other cheek. But it's not a. See what I mean? That's not. And an empowered person doesn't just throw his other cheek out there. It just seems counter. But to a slave, you really. You. What are your options? You. Of course, you're taught to turn the other cheek. What are your options? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or the idea of, of justice. The, in the ancient world, justice basically meant we're equally strong because if I could impose my will on you, I would. And if you could impose your will on me, you would. And we all understood this, right? Yeah. And so negotiation was almost always about, well, we're pretty equally matched. So let's see if we can work out something that's fair for both sides. Yeah. But this notion of some overarching divine field of justice is – Oh, I wish you wouldn't have mentioned that. Oh, sorry. Uh -oh. <laughs> this uh, this is one that uh, this is one that I hear not every day, pretty much every day. Uh, someone will tell me how important justice is to them. Uh, sometimes they'll say love and justice, most important things, and then I'll 
through no fault of my own, will say <laughs> something about a person, and then someone, and then the same person will tell me, "Oh, you're judging him." So, of course, I want to know how do you have justice without judgment? I'm very curious how that. If justice is important to you, then judging others is. I don't see how. <laughs> and furthermore, what do you care about people's judgments against you? Unless you're in court, what do you care about people's opinions about you? Why would you care about that? Anyway, so yeah, justice without judgment seems well. It seems impossible. It's, it, it's, it's a silly. because it's oxy, it's oxymoronic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It's, it's truly. But we'd say this all the time. We want justice, and we don't want to be judged. Yeah. And you shouldn't judge people, but we should have justice. Only is, yeah, right. Only a slave would not judge. That's what a slave had no position to judge. Yeah. So we judge all the time. Oh yeah, we pretend that we don't <laughs> judge all the time. Absolutely, it's, it's the craziest. It is. It really. Is. By the way, we have no choice but to judge. I mean, you have to make decisions, which requires discernment, or hopefully requires discernment. Um, hence. You are judging. You want to judge. Judge so that you will be judged. I think that's the, that should be how it reads. I think it's a mistranslation. I'll just say that. <laughs> and at one point, maybe Wes looked this up. At one point, I think we found that the real translation was more like prejudgment, that it's best not to prejudge a person. Yeah. Um, but I, I have no, I didn't, I never saw that in writing, but somewhere I picked up from, from someone that actually the line, thou shall not judge. In the translation, it, it, it would have been better to have said, thou should not prejudge, which really is vastly different than, yeah. Way different. Way, <laughs> way different. <laughs> I, this may be a little bit off the topic. However, it came to my mind, so I'm going to say it. <laughs> I spent much of my life working in prisons. And at one point, uh, I won't get into the entire circumstances of this, but... Charlie Manson told me <laughs> you, personally <laughs> true, in person? that I, you only know what you've been told. And I think he was speaking about himself and our interaction. But it's something that it's one of those. And I hate to just grab any type of wisdom from a mass murderer. But <laughs> when you think about it, we only know what we've been told unless we delve into. Yep. We go outside of what we see. How important is that? I mean, you have to in everything that we that comes to us is filtered through somebody else unless we take that next step because if we're going to know anything other than what we've been told, we have to do a lot of work. Yeah. It sounds like you both have done that. Yeah. Um See, I think the I think the problem is that the the most essential topics get right outside of words. And and actually the word ineffable, the reason that's beautiful is because it means unspeakable, beyond fable. Fable, uh, speak, fari to speak. So the problem is, say we're talking about love, we love this person, how quickly we run out of words. Same with the word God. It would appear everyone has a little different slant on the word God. Well, the, the problem is because it's beyond words. And once we start talking words, swords are going to fly or rather machine guns are going to shoot. Um, so I think the tricky part is the essential human hardness or whatever 
you're more apt to find it on a mountaintop, and it probably is not going to be in words at all. And and I think part of it too is, I mean, I'm, you know, obviously we're both big fans of reading and studying directly, but that's also words from the outside. And at some point, you have to stop and say, well, what do I think? Where does this come from? What is my actual experience in the world? Which is often misleading. That's the problem. We can have misleading experiences. And if we draw too many conclusions from them, then we draw the wrong conclusions. But if you don't stop and try, um, yeah, then you're, you're... thinking is so shaped and your experience of the world is so shaped by outside forces that as an individual um, you almost cease cease to exist the example speaking of things that pop into mind on this one is if it, people have read 1984 I read this recently so it's really been pondering about it the George Orwell book which is spectacular his concept there was that there was going to be the big brother the outside force that really ground all of this in, into us. It was going to be sort of oppressive. That prediction didn't come true, at least for much of the world. Conversely, the notion of restricting or changing the way we think really has to a significant degree. And the example I like to give is, of, since we've all taken multiple choice tests, is the multiple choice test. In a multiple choice test, SAT or Wassel or whatever, Common Core, you have a question and there's one right answer. And that right answer is the answer that the people who made the test know. And so what you're trying to do as a test taker is figure out what thought the people who drew the test up want you to have. <laughs> it doesn't question you or your experience. It doesn't ask you anything about your world. It doesn't have, allow you to explain anything that you felt or you've experienced. It says... One of these is correct. And I'll give you two examples of how flawed this is. If anybody's ever had the math problem, because math, you would think, well, certainly that's not a problem with math. It's particularly a problem with math, actually, is if you've had one of the multiple choice questions that says there's a sequence of numbers, one, and then three, and then nine, and then there's a blank, and then said, what should the next number be? And so the idea is, well, you figure out what the pattern of the numbers is, and then one of the things below you know, we'll say 12, 15, 21, or 36. Well, if you figure out the correct pattern, then you know which one to fill in the blank. The problem is there's literally, not figuratively, an infinite number of ways to derive any series of numbers. So I can write an equation that will make every number that is part of the multiple choice answer the correct one for that sequence of... So there really is... It's it, it, and I'm almost I'm sure all, all of us have had that experience. If you think lit, on the other hand, where they give you a reading question, here's a paragraph, read it, and then they say, "What is the point of this paragraph?" And there's one, two, three, four sentences that you choose from. Well, the point for whom? Because if I read a paragraph about a dog and I had my favorite dog in the whole world that I loved when I was a kid, and that reminds me of it, that's probably what the paragraph is about to me. But somebody else was mauled by a dog that morning, that paragraph is going to be totally different to them. And yet when we sit there in these environments, what we have to do is try and focus our minds and think, what does somebody else want me to think when I read this passage? Which is a really narrowing 
of the human experience. And it's banal because everybody's taken 100,000 multiple choice tests. And so we don't even see it anymore of how, how narrowing and focusing this is. And that's what I think, like you said, with philosophy and hopefully the history of philosophy and pondering these things as we go, hey, hey, wait a second. I think all of these answers are not correct or I don't think these answers apply to me. There's no box for that. There's no right. box. That's right. right. Yeah. Or let alone are the questions ill. Well, <laughs> so if that's the case, yeah. if you're trying to check the box that is the truth for the person that wrote the question, you're guessing at the cumulative experience of the person that wrote the question more than the actual truth because that person is only knows what they've been told. We don't know. <laughs> we yeah. don't know what that person's thinking. So what's the answer? How do you do that better? Wes. <laughs> Milo. Uh that that see that's one that's one of those questions that that uh, would take too much time, but I think I can give it I can give it a shot. It depends what you're looking for. If you want someone to be part of a corporation, you want them to get the answer that you want them to give. You want them to fit in. Basically, you want that, uh, which works uh, very well for the larger. I mean, we. I mean, the thing is, we need that too. I mean, who's going to make our cars or, or you know, my paints, my tubes of paint? I, I really, I don't think I'd even be a painter if I couldn't get tubes of paint made by someone who has followed that. So we need everyone. I mean, the truth is, we need everyone. Um, it's just, it so happens that some of us, we'll just say, were lied to as kids and decided that um, it bothered us. And uh, and so now a little detector <laughs> goes off. Uh, actually, Wes and I were talking about this, and maybe we don't know the the answer to things, but we but we have pretty good ideas of what doesn't work. And so I guess there's a place for that as well. Uh, people to uh, you could call it progressive or whatever. People who change things who are not content with the uh, way things are. So it just depends on. Who the test is for, you know? I mean, just yesterday I was reading a, a line, and, and it, it goes, uh, "It goes, education is recreation." Well, now that's a Greek thought to recreate yourself through education. I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest you go throwing that around. <laughs> <laughs> that isn't. You see what I mean? It, it sounds counter, but here he is. He's talking two thousand five hundred years ago, and he's talking about how, yeah, education is recreating oneself recreating well that doesn't work for any corporation i've heard, heard of although today is probably a better time than other times why uh because i i think that that uh i think people by and large are smarter and that they realize in a corporation you need a few mavericks you need a few to to grow anything anything that's going to grow needs change that's what growth is a form of change of course so for a company to grow just having automatons or whatever, um, I mean, uh, workers. You de- <laughs> By workers, you mean slaves. <laughs> you need both. You need, be, uh, you need, really, there's a place for everyone. And maybe that's the point. There is a place for everyone. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Milo Redwood and Wes Cecil, the professor and the madman on KPTZ 91.9 FM in Port Townsend. Well, another example to add to your question, too, is to say 
if there's a question and you allow an essay answer, then then someone can write an essay, a short even a paragraph, and you can have ten people give you ten different answers, all of which can be equally good. But then you're back to the notion of judgment. You you can't run that through a computer scanner and have it go, well, yes or no. But you can judge that and say, oh, you know, we never thought about that, but that's really quite a fine answer. Or you can go, in theory, we could sort of agree with that, but you know, that's so poorly presented that we don't really like that answer. Um, and so those – you know, so it is possible to give a test where you let students have all kinds of range of potentially correct answers based on the merits of their arguments. Um, part of this also, by the way, is the notion that just because there's more than one right answer doesn't mean everything is correct. It just means there's a range of correct answers and also a range of possibly incorrect answers, right? So here's a question for both of you. If that's true... And you obviously spend some time at this. You spend some time with thought, both of you. Do you ever test yourself? Do you ever test your thoughts? And if you do, how do you do it? Uh, it's. I would say most of my day I'm testing myself. Um, this is why close friends, and if you have a handful that you're doing very well, close friends will um, call, let's see, how would you say, malarkey. They'll call malarkey on you. Uh, well, if, if, we're if, on the radio. We gotta, we gotta, <laughs> uh, the malarkey callers. I forgot. Good job, Milo. I was about to say something. Lucky you uh, took this one first. Now, here's one of those things where, where um, well, if my actions and my words are in conflict, uh, a, a, a friend of mine will say, hey, uh, and, and, and sure, it, it very likely will irritate me in the moment. Who wants to be called on something that you know? He's so, but but as, as I see it, that's the only hope. Well, hope isn't the word, but anyway, that's the only. That's what I live for. Is uh, it gets musical? It really gets musical. A discord, whether it's a whether it's a what a philosophical discord or a, um, an emotional discord or intellectual or whatever. A discord for whatever reason hurts me. I I, I think I was born that way. I, I, I really do. By the time I was three or four, I actually it hurt me to see grandma saying one thing and doing another. For whatever reason, that's just the way I, I was wired. So good friends will point that out. Today, of course, Facebook and other things have brought that that le, the definition of friend down to an all-time low. <laughs> they pretty much made it. In. I don't even know what it m means anymore. But but a lot uh, a lot can be uh, improved. When a person just defines what what is a friend and really really thinks about that, what makes a friend to you? Only you will know. But but what is a what is a friend anyway? So a friend will call. Yeah, I think another another I think that's correct. Another way of thinking about this too is to say, um, and I think it was what Milo meant by discord and harmony is, you know, I, I've one of my fundamental beliefs, and this is where you want to start questioning things, is I believe in the notion of thriving. You know, am I really thriving? And if not, why not? And and that's a changing target because we're not in stasis. And so what was maybe great for me five years ago, you know, at some point becomes not great. And so I need to change and adjust. And so I'm constantly trying to reflect on you know, am I living in a way that I feel 
both emotionally and physically and psychologically is helping me thrive. And boy, it's amazing when you ask a question like that, how easy it is to go, well, you know, I've got, I feel good physically, but you know, I'm not sleeping well or something. You know, you can find these areas and you go, why is that? And once you ask that, boy, you often get a lot of feedback and information, but, but outside good friends are, are, are excellent. And that's important, I think, because internally you have internal tests of yourself, but you need discourse. And that seems to be a very Greek, you need people, let me put it this way, you brought up music. And I remember listening to Ray Shroff. He's a DJ here one time. And uh, he was talking, he plays jazz. And he says, I'm Ray Shroff. I'm your mojo navigator. Like, mojo <laughs> navigator. That's How a good job title. How cool is that? Because, and I think when it comes to thought, you need a mojo navigator too. You never can do that by yourself. You need people giving you their thoughts and ideas. And when you speak about Facebook... <laughs> If that is the substitution for sitting in a room talking with people, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're in trouble on that front, no doubt. But, I, I mean, one element of that or the other extreme of that, which is sort of con constant for us, is we submit ourselves to judgment, which we talked about earlier, but of people who don't know us, which is <laughs> – bizarre so we tend i think this is observationally correct in general i see people care a lot more about what people who don't know them think of them than of the people who do know them so if i i say oh i'm gonna save my money and buy this really nice car and it's gonna impress who it's gonna impress people you don't know true story i i, I read this in the newspaper and i looked it up online to make sure it was true but when the Hummers, the the big, those huge SUVs were coming out, and they were really selling really well for a while, shockingly enough, they said one of the reasons that owners cited that were great to own a Hummer was how impressed the people in the drive through line at McDonald's and such were when you drove up in a Hummer. That's a mental illness. <laughs> if you're feel good because people you don't know who work in the drive fast food drive up line will go wow that guy must be great because he has see that's just bizarre at the same time to then not care what people who do know you think which I think is those are almost coterminous they, they seem to work together on a sliding scale um, so we'll do something awful to people we do know so that we can get a Hummer to impress people we don't know. And then we feel great, I guess, but it's going to be temporary. Yeah. It's very strange. And so that need for self-reflection is also a need and the need for friends to help you with self-reflection seems to run counter to our culture again, in which is really much more significantly interested in surface appearance and coherence within, um, sort of a popular milieu but not but with strangers you're impress you're trying to impress strangers most of the time not impress people who know you yeah yeah there's i mean another way to look at it is that uh thinking is that that i mean you can have that free range thinking i mean obviously you can sit around and do all that but i'm i'm more intrigued of the action that then follows 
And and so the friend comes in again when those two are in utter conflict, perhaps, or are off a bit, or whatever. And that a disharmony is is there. I mean, in a way, we're defining hypocrisy, right? I mean, that's pretty much the word. Uh, so so a good friend, a good friend will point out hypocrisy in you because they're your friend. They want you to thrive, and so hypocrisy uh, denotes not thriving. Right. It's it's a yeah. And and I think part of it, too, you may not even have intellectualized it. You right. you may not even be actually fully aware of what you're doing, which I think is often the case. So you may be thinking, oh, you know, I've got these ideas. I'm doing the right thing. And then somebody from the outside, I'm trying to think of a concrete example. Um, well, let's say you think, oh, I want to be healthy. I want to be healthy. That's yeah. really one of my big goals. That's not, you know, not crazy. That's a perfectly reasonable goal. And so you start maybe running and you start running and running and running and clearly you're damaging your health. And you can see this. People do this. They'll run and their knees start and their feet and their ankles and they're getting surgeries and they're going, they're doing it for their health. And you, at some point, if you're getting surgeries for your health, you know, that's, you know, it's sort of, you, you it's easy to go wrong. Um, and then again, hopefully, friends are people who step step in and say, "Look, I know you're trying to do what's right. You're not just being hypocritical, right. but but wow, you you know you're sort of this has gone off the rails, and it's hard. And it is. And there's so many things to balance, and we're changing, and our environments are changing, and so yeah, you know, it's kind of a never-ending process. It's there's a lot of material there. I mean, now this isn't the, <laughs> this isn't the the nicest thing I've ever said, but I was thinking about how you. Once in a while, you'll hear someone complain about life a lot. They actually seem to hate life. Uh, then they'll go to the gym, and you're kind of like, why are you trying to live longer? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> why, why are you trying to extend your life if you don't love your life? You know, it's just one of those, yeah, it's just one of those things. Well, you've touched on a couple of things here that almost <laughs> go to the heart of maybe it's time to redefine mental illness. I mean, um, <laughs> I've I've heard maybe it was from Wes about Native American cultures where that concept of mental illness was applied to specific people that got more than they needed and didn't want to share with the rest. And I'd never thought about it that way. Uh, <laughs> but evidently that's not a new concept. No. Yeah, that, that notion of... I mean, mental illness is always normed within societies. And so what some societies will tolerate, other societies will not tolerate. And other societies will go, no, that's just fine. I mean, so, but yeah, in some societies, if you're, you know, we call it hoarding. Um, in some societies, they would say, well, that's A, because it could actually damage the, the tribe. If you're a small enough group and somebody is taking all the food or all of the material goods, they're actually a threat. And so you had to call it a mental illness. So you have a you know a reason to intervene. But no, I think it is. It, it, it is mentally ill. I think quite literally. What did you call it? Well, well, I mean, I I'm a little, I'm a little hesitant to to call it. I would call it neurotic. It's it's split. And and in all fairness, Wes has heard this plenty of times. In all fairness, um, the human brain, because it is split, at least three ways. Uh, reptilian mammal to just fully uh, prefrontal cortex. So basically the most human part all the way down to reptile. We are split physically. Our brains are split. So in some ways to be a human is 
to be neurotic. In some ways, I think that's fair if you follow the etymology. Uh, so, so to be split, I would say, is a given. So even if you embrace that, let's just say you go, oh, yeah, I'm split. I'm, you know, my mammal side jumps off and I start this impossible love thing or whatever, whatever you're split. Um, even if you fully embrace that, the human, the, the prefrontal still, I would hope, comes in and goes, yeah, all right, I'm split. Now, how, how can I get back to making my life better? And by better, I mean better for you as individual. Like basically we're mm, – what needs work and just set back on it, admitting that, yeah, we're split. We're yeah, split. And, and yeah. Part of it is the, or one of the splits is the communal versus the individual. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're, we're communal animals. We live in societies. We can only thrive in society. We cannot thrive on our own. We're, you know, we'll just die, you know, because it's, it's, you, if you only drive on the freeway you built, you're going to be in trouble. Right. I mean, so this, these sorts of structures really help the individual thrive but for the individual, it's always how much of my individuality and myself and my ideas and my drives do I sacrifice so that I can fit in with a community. So if we're on this radio show and Milo had this he was the fascinating word malarkey, <laughs> which I don't believe I have ever heard past. His and for the record, I don't know the etymology of that. So I, I, I want to know the etymology of malarkey. But. But so that's a very small, I mean, it's a teeny tiny sacrifice, but because of the communal norms that we live in, you were not supposed to use certain other words, which is fine. But those sorts of forces are always challenging us. And, you know, and yeah, they're, they're basically unsolvable because they're an internal conflict. We want to be loved. We want to have groups. We want to have friends and we want to be ourselves. We want to express ourselves and. And so trying to negotiate those is, boy, that's that's the yeah. human condition. That's why yeah, we need yeah, philosophies because yeah. the human condition isn't solvable. You know, if you didn't – if we had a solvable problem, you know, it would be math and we'd be in good shape. But well, we don't have one of those. <laughs> it's probably just as well too. Yeah. It would be more right? fun this way. <laughs> exactly. What was the answer? Seven I think was the <laughs> – yeah. Well, the FCC has tried to define what those words are that may be offensive and they're excretory in nature, obscene. Um, and when you think about it, uh, that, that goes to exactly what you're saying. Is we try to define some undefinable uh, – and, and words words are important. Yeah. Uh, you Entomology, you just talked about neurotic. How – important or what let me think about i don't really know how to phrase this okay you have a word and it comes from a certain place right. it comes from that place for certain reasons and then as we use that word that original meaning is not known or it goes away but it has a beating heart and well said. and 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 how important is it for us to know what that beating heart is well, I mean, that that's definitely up to the individual. I I basically live for that um, because I just uh, – I love getting to the roots of things. I, I just – I was born that way. Uh, my mother uh, – I mean, I would just tear stuff apart not to be destructive to see how it worked. Always a screwdriver in a hand, pliers. I mean, age four. I mean, and so it's just in my nature. But here, here's an easy one. This, this one's probably been overdone. But the word nice – um, 
we say someone's nice and all. Well, if you knew the etymology, you would be very careful about using that word because it turns out that it actually means ignorant fool. That's what that word means. And it goes to nescience. It meant uh, without sci- uh, science. So not to know. That's what nice comes from, not to know. Whereas the word kind uh, almost definitely goes to kin, kinship. So if you're kind to someone, it's because you feel a kinship. If you're kind to the earth, it's because you feel a kinship to the earth. Nice is really, I, I mean, I use it because I'm a smart aleck, but I, but, but it's a really like for someone to say he had a nice personality really is a funny thing to say. Persona comes from mask. Pretty much everyone knows that persona comes from mask, the word mask. So to say he, he has a ignorant mask, it's just, you know, so it get, I, I like it because it, it, uh, I like stories. So to get a story behind a word and to get the, hopefully, the original intent of the word. And it's also important not necessarily to have the full etymologies of every word, but you want to know the real words that are key to your life, what they mean and how you're using them. But also the capacity to make distinctions. I think I mentioned this before where if you look on anything online, reviews, YouTube, comments, everything is either the best or the worst. There's apparently nothing mediocre ever produced. It's either the greatest that's ever existed and the person below says, no, this is the worst that's ever existed. The, the lack of the language to express a sense of distinctions is itself a sort of incapacity. And so I think knowing words is also a method of being able to express your unique experience with the world. So what the words that are important to you that you might want to use carefully will be different from the next person, but it allows you to take language and your experiences and your culture, which shape you in so many ways, but then use those tools to then express some of yourself back in it. If you don't have any concept of the language that you're utilizing in a day-to-day manner, particularly with things that are important to you, um, then... The the great trouble, I think, the classic example, again, probably overused, is the word love that Milo mentioned earlier. So often I hear people say, oh, I love you, and this other, other person says, I love you. And in my mind, I think both those people mean totally different things. Mm-hmm. What this person means when they say they love them is totally different from what this person means when they say they love you. And that is the quick recipe for relational disaster because – even if both people are completely sincere and there's no, you know, sort of other games going on, they say, I love you, which they think means these three things. And the other person says, I love you and means these three things. And so they're actually hearing something that the other person is not saying because they have no clearly articulated notion of what it means. And so if I say, I love you, and that means um, I'm going to get you flowers and take you out to dinners and we're going to have nice vacations. And you say you love me, and I hear, oh, we're going to stay home, we're going to have this quiet life, and you're going to make a lot of dinners. <laughs> you know, this th- – nobody is evil. No one is being bad. No one's even me- being mean-spirited. It's just that the language they're using is so indefinite that they're that collision, right? Here comes pain. Pain is on the way, even though you have two, in this case, potentially all totally well-meaning people. And – this may explain why the word love is not is something that I use sparingly. Yeah. And I heard recently that 
um, okay, I love you means I really have to get off the phone now. You know what I mean? It, it, you know, it, there, it, and, and I had to raise true. That's ever, great. Ever since I heard that, I've used it even even. I'm going to start using that. It, That's it great. Is, uh, it's an amazing word. And, yeah. and, and it, in English, we're here speaking English. <laughs> I'm sorry, you guys. You got me just like firing. I, <laughs> That's I really... Um, are there languages that do things better in certain arenas? I mean, we speak English and everybody's whoopee English. You know, you can go to Germany and people speak English. But are there languages now that do some things, intangible things, better than what we're doing now? Are there things that can't be explained in English? Wes, that's definitely you. Yeah, so this is a big debate, by the way, in, in, in language studies. I think in general, no. There's You can express pretty much anything in pretty much any language. Ha! Ah, the key, however, is the facility of expression is totally different. So, and the feel of the language. Um, so there's, so if, if you have a word that means um, you have many relatives who love you, you've been raised in a stable environment, um, you feel loved and that your community is behind you and therefore you're free in the world, which some languages do. African languages, by the way, tend to be rich in these sorts of words. So they have one word that means that. It's so much easier to express that concept than to say, no, you know, I just feel like I was raised by a wonderful family and they gave me these gifts and I have their support and I live in a rich community. If I can just say a word that talks about that kind of, let's call it wealth, and then I can string together some more words, then it does really shade the types of expressions that are easier and 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 less easy to make. Um that so that's so but it is but basically you can express anything in every language but uh, and also i think one that we don't want to go on this whole linguistic rabbit hole um which i'm happy to do by the way but i'll i'll try to rein myself in the other thing is the way languages are structured are very different and so french for instance doesn't have a very large vocabulary relative to english but it's very rich in phrases and so there's all of these you know double and triple entendre Phrases that people in French will use very regularly that creates this rich experience, despite the fact that compared to English, they don't have quite as many words, but they, they're you, the way they you actually construct sentences, particularly for literary purposes, is, is actually quite different and, and in some ways very rich, uh, much richer than English, which can get quite dry at times um, compared to like a French or a uh, French language. Yeah. Wes Cecil and Milo Redwood, if you're just joining us, the professor and the madman on Toss Salad, KPTZ, Port Townsend. So what else has been on your mind? Milo? Uh. (laughs) (laughs) I I hate putting people on the spot. You just put them on the spot. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so. Uh, Yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, I mean, I mean, on the right over here money money's still a great topic yeah, a great, great topic, topic we're because, gonna need another hour yeah 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 <laughs> ding ding uh yeah on the way over we were just talking about how you can have very loving 
well-educated, and I mean that in the deepest sense, uh, uh, just beautiful people. We'll just say a family. Uh, and then, and then someone dies and then, I mean, maybe you've been through this where suddenly there's money on the table. Someone left some money and suddenly you have, they're not people anymore for, for a little while they turn into little, they turn to animals. It intrigues me. It really intrigues me because minutes before, and so money's still truly one of my favorite topics just because I see it as being, I probably mentioned this, but I see it as being truly one of the best mirrors you can find. In fact, I have yet to find one. How our relationship to money as an individual is, in my view, the perfect mirror because it, it just, since it is a symbol and since everyone really seems to have a little different spin on what money means to them and all that, it really gives you a chance of seeing what you're about, your relationship to money. Because it's just math and symbol. It's symbol uh, and math, a little math. So our relationship to money is just, it's its beautiful. I really can't think of another one. Love, when I think of love, in this case, I'm thinking of romantic love. It's a great mirror. There's no doubt about it. The problem is, is it's not quite as clean a mirror as money. <laughs> it, with, right? It, it, it's a relate. It's but relate. what makes it beautiful? Uh, the clarity of money. Mm-hmm. Just the clarity, because it's all basically my relationship about with money is all me. It's bouncing off of the money. The money's the same. You know, uh, there are lots of examples, but I mean, you know, ten thousand dollars to one person is just a, well, it's just a different thing to someone else. That's I'm being. That's you know what I mean. That's a loose. That's a loose example. But um, but maybe a better example is when someone. Oh, here's one. Someone gets fired. Actually, I had this happen. Uh, a person got fired, and she's smart enough and also mischievous enough to to want to mess with me. So, so she here's what she says. She says, "I just got fired," and then she gives a blank stare, and I don't know what to do. And so I see a grin coming up, and then I say, "Congratulations!" See, it could have gone either way. It could have easily gone either way. She could have she could have gone into a deep depression for years, actually, from being fired. Someone else would have and has gone into a depression someone else rebounds rebuilds their life according to them from the inside out and and the being in fired was actually one of the most important things in, in their life anyway that's a, another example of how money livelihood and all uh so much can be i i just like the clarity of it so it, money as a mirror a person's relationship to money instantly sh- shows something that may be hidden previously a lot well, the, the example i like and oh. we've talked about this before is um people who are, who are married i know people have been married for years or they're in a relationship for long-term committed so they have kids they have a house they have sex together they've all they have separate bank accounts <laughs> his money and her money and i'm you're sharing everything bodies. in your life you're sharing bodies you're sharing <laughs> genes you're sharing kids you're his money and her money. And I, I'm not against it. I'm not opposed to it. I don't care. If it helps your relationship work, that's great. But it's, it's wow, we will share in everything except that. You know, that's a lot of people draw that line because what they find is it generates so many conflicts in a relationship to try and communicate about it, to try and be clear, to set priorities and to share it that the best thing is to just 
parse it out and then don't talk about it, right? And I, to me, that is just one of those fascinating, uh, just, just again, it's a mirror, right? It just tells you that there is this in the center of this relationship is two different views. In fact, such different views on such a central issue that the solution has been to just separate it to his and hers. That is a fascinating concept yeah. because we, we, we share bath towels and it, you know, <laughs> yeah. right. You're sharing everything, right? right? We don't, or really, I think we understand it. We don't even think about it. We just, we live in a culture that, makes that okay or it's totally understandable to us because it's money money is like a, a sugar cube it's like something everybody grabs for right. so yeah it, but it is it is a very strange concept separate bank accounts yeah and i said i'm not against it. if it makes your relationship work fine but it's just it's to me it just seems like the strangest that i would be willing to share all of that but not the money and hence this is you know, the example of like an inheritance that Milo was talking about when you have a group of people, usually siblings, um, who are looking at that pile of money that you would think, oh, you know, we're raised together. We're brothers and sisters. We're going to share. Everything's going to be happy go lucky. The history of this is not that. <laughs> the history of this is, oh, where's the lawyers, right? Let's get some lawyers because that always makes every situation better. <laughs> I lived through that recently. Oh, sorry Actually, about that. I'm living through that now. And it, it is very thought-provoking because everything split totally equally. Um, I, I'm to the point where I'm happy that the person, or my parents, are, are, are not alive to see how extremely complicated that can be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah anyway. So some, uh, some of the Taoist... Uh, they actually considered leaving money to your children as a curse, which is just a profound way of viewing things. They just, they just, uh, yeah, they thought that it, it, it was just like cursing your children. Isn't that an odd, it's just completely opposite of, yeah. And, and the, conversely is the, why do people die with a lot of money? Why wouldn't you take care of this when you're alive? either get rid of it or do something with it or put it in a pile and light it on fire or I don't know. <laughs> but obviously at some point they just decide, well, I don't want to deal with this. Let those people yeah, yeah. Like the, pass that problem on to the next generation. It's well, just, you know, it's now just, we have defined money as a problem. Well, it just, but, but it becomes right. It becomes this, this real significant. Uh, I, I mean, I'm trying to think of examples of, you see, the only example I really springs to mind is King Lear, right? When Lear tried to separate it all out, that didn't work out well either. So maybe there's no good solution as, as so often the case. But yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful mirror on ourselves and our relationships. And you're tuned to KPTZ 91.9 FM in Port Townsend. We have uh, maybe another 10, 15 minutes with Wes Cecil and Milo Redwood. Here on Toss Salad at 3.30, Deb Hammond comes in to read poetry. I uh, I don't exactly know what poetry, but we will. Uh, you stick with us and we will find out. So, gentlemen, we have a little bit of time. There's just so much... Uh, so much territory to talk about. <laughs> and uh, we've, we've hit on money. We've hit on love. We've talked some about words and languages. All these things are, um, they float around us. 
we don't exactly stand up and grab grab them uh but we it's necessary for us i think that one thing i i get out of it is how important it is to listen to other people or to have that discourse with people that are outside of our own experience to bring in different ideas thoughts um it my impression is that both of you do this quite well has there been anything that uh, has come to mind lately that has intrigued you uh made you think the, uh, I, i'm gonna blame milo for this and that is sterner oh. so so there's, he was a German philosopher, wrote, basically wrote one work, uh, The Ego and Its Own, I believe is the, yeah. is the English translation. And boy, I mean, this is, this, by the way, this is why I think it's good to read good material. It's, you know, like I said before, you don't want to read too much. Uh, that's my, one of my definite struggles is I just think reading is the solution to everything, which is incorrect. But, you know, that, but, but reading someone like Stirner, and it's not that Stirner's right. It's not that the Greek philosophers are right or that the Taoist philosophers are right, but they have such powerful voices and they, they raise issues so clearly and so strongly that it sort of shakes you or at least shakes me. And I kind of go, holy cow. And Stirner is, is really, I mean, it is the philosophy of individualism taken to uh, its absolute extreme extent. I don't know how you could be any more um, individualistic than he is. And, I mean, there's all kinds of limitations and problems with it, but it is such a cool glass of water in a desert, and you don't realize how continuously we get messages of... Um, you know, go along to get along, you know, everybody just let's all just, you know, sacrifice a little for the group and how constant that is until you read someone like Sterner and you're like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, wow, this is such a sort of a vitamin or a reminder. And so I think reading the the, the classics of, of, of all the cultures really has that power, but Sterner was the one for me recently, and it's Milo's fault because he turned. Me <laughs> well, you can blame Jung because I came to him through Carl Jung. Um, yes, Sterner. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's hard. Mm, I would say, I would say that uh, the breakthroughs. Why? Well, I, I, for one thing, I live for breakthroughs. I mean, that's for, but. Uh, a lot's riding with uh, when I finally defined what I consider to be life for myself. Like what is the difference in a life and an existence? For example, um, uh, if you're imprisoned, you know, is that a life or is that an existence? I mean, it's really up to the individual to figure that out. Some people, I suppose, would flourish in prison. I'm probably not one of those. But but uh, so, so first to do that and then to just set about... Uh, making it making it you know getting get to the roots so sterner's great for that because he um he's he doesn't apologize he's here's a man by the way he he died just before nietzsche was born right yeah something yep. like that nietzsche's another one how about this the the beauty of the greeks some of the germans uh and others uh is that ultimately they're saying yes to life even if they have a sword in their hand, even if they're going out to battle, it this could be the last day of their life. But they're saying yes to life, and um, yeah, that's that's. Uh, I, 
Yeah, I think that's right? absolutely yay, right. Yay absolutely, because it, it, they're yaysayers. Yeah. And another thing that both of us do that I think is interesting that I don't see a lot of other people doing is we're constantly running experiments on ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, continuously. We almost always, each of us, have at least one, usually one going on. Um, an, an example, I think, Milo, right now, you're not drinking, right? Yeah, so this like, is day 33. Day 33. <laughs> but but I read this article about the health benefits of moderate drinking, and I did some research. And so I went for 40 days. We could talk about why it's always 40 days, where I drank the same amount every day, the maximum amount allowable as Who moderate drinking <laughs> for, for, for my weight, for my size, right? So I found a medical advice. I said, here's how much I could drink. And so I'd pour that every day. Um, and, and I've tried uh, not – Eating meat, um, changing my sleep pattern, changing my exercise patterns, uh, not reading, reading certain amounts. Um, God, what's some of the experiments that you've run? Drinking, not drinking. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of other experiments that you've painting. You did the painting oh, right, one, right? Yeah. I did. I did one with writing. Yeah. Oh, painting. It's a that's a long. Oh, basically, I did a, a series of a thousand twelve by twelves. Um, it took about 18 months and there, the experiment, uh, first of all, it was some of the best 18 months of my life. Uh, because as you know, when you get a project that you yourself want to do and you are, um, have made the place to do it and all, you know what that's like, it's timeless. And well, anyway, uh, the idea was to see how music affected my choice of colors and form. So basically the idea, sit down. With no pre-thinking, choose music and wait. And uh, so, so yeah. Anyway, after a thousand, what I ended up probably won't be a surprise to you. What ended up happening is my favorite paintings of the of the entire group uh, tended actually to come through silence. So in the end, silence won out. Um, Close runners up were Neil Young, <laughs> yeah, bam, but, and Neil but, Young, and uh, yeah, yeah. Now, and then and then so I was trying to think of some other ones. So I've done um, uh, no coffee, which turns out to be really good for me. Um, so I tend not to drink coffee. I tried again. I tried to drink coffee what? again. Wait a minute. On another experiment, I tried to drink coffee for a while as an experiment. It turned out that's a bad idea. So I went back to not drinking coffee. Um, God, the. Oh, no TV. I haven't had a TV for, I don't know, 30 years, I don't think, because I ran that trial a while back and I just, well, a while back, a couple decades back, and I just found that it was just, it's not good for me. So I got rid of that, you know, and so these sorts of experiments, I think, you know, a lot of times there's changes that we can think about making. Well, you don't have to, you know, quit your job and divorce your wife and move to a commune and someplace. You can just go, you know, I think I want to run an experiment and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to drink coffee or I'm only going to, I'm going to drink, I'm going to drink more. I need to drink a lot more. And I'm going to try that. I'm not going to not drink at all. Or, you know, there's so many different aspects of your life that you might ponder changing and inflecting and then track it. And then try and be honest with, do you feel better? Do you feel worse? And, you know, I felt terrible when I drank all the time. It turns out I really like to binge drink. I'm a binge well, drinker, that, you know. That's what I was thinking. Have you ever taken, like, that moderate drinking scenario? You would have one glass of wine for 40 days and done it all in one day. Yeah. And there you go. 
<laughs> How'd that turn out? I like you? that a lot better. I'm a binge drinker. No, honestly, what I've discovered is I like to not drink for a while, and then I like to drink uh-huh. a lot. Well, I, I, yeah. I see a certain benefit to that myself. So out of these experiments that you both run, which I think is an excellent idea, actually, is there one that you would recommend? That's that's a tough one. And I talk about putting it on the spot, but you're talking to an audience on the radio. We don't know who's listening. Yeah. yeah. So this is an, an amorphous group of people out there uh, that are waiting for an answer. <laughs> all right. How about, um, well, first, th- this is just a slight, slight. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Diogenes, at one point, he sees a guy tuning. Is it Lear? It's a guitar. Basically, a liar. A liar. Yeah. Liar, yeah. Harp. I saying liar. Yeah, anyway, he's, uh, this kid is just doing it. And Diogenes walks by and he says, huh, spend all that time tuning your instrument and you're not even tuning your soul. So first, I'll, I'll just refresh your memory. When I use the word soul, I'm talking about that which in you wants to live and to make something live. So you can almost tie it. You could almost say libido, but in a wider sense, not necessarily sexually, although, you know, wanting to have a child would probably be in there. Right. But uh, but I'm thinking more in terms of of art, music, writing, what have you. So so when I use soul that I want to be very clear because that word has been run almost an impossible etymology, by the way, the word soul, it could easily come from the word sea of the sea, but. But that's even that's dubious. Anyway, uh, so I would say something like figure out what makes you want to live. Um, and then do little things like uh, th- throw your TV out the window. Maybe start there. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a, it's kind of oh, wide diet. I would say diet and, and yeah, diet things start with physical. I would say start with physical change, like yeah. like do six weeks of no whatever, no meat, whatever, or meat, whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it starts as far as I can tell. It starts from the body. Uh, you change your right. Yeah, I would say to look at uh, the pattern that you live in, whatever it yeah. is, and if there's anyone that you're dubious about, forget everybody else. You crazy yeah. everybody else, but if there's one you're dubious. But if you think, yeah, you know, maybe I spend a little too much time on the internet, or why do I read the paper? It's just filled with crap that upsets me every day. Then, then run the experiment. Then just pick that and go. If it's already sending up a little flag, if it's got a little nagging itch in the back of your brain where you kind of go, well, well, then you'll find out. Forty day, forty days is a yeah. it's a philosopher's month. It's called, and it's, yeah. you know, forty days, forty nights in the desert. There seems to be a psychological and physiological reason for this um, that's been demonstrated to be scientifically, you know, somewhat valid. By the way, um, and then you know, then you'll know. And then you can say, well, you know, after 40 days without the Internet, I decided I'm happy if I use it less. But I really I get a lot of joy and pleasure out of it. So, you know, maybe I'm fine with it. Maybe I'll use it a little less. But basically, yeah, I think it's good. Or you might discover, ah, just, this is I don't need this. I'm, you know, I'm much happier without it. You just here. I'll make sure to win some friends. Uh, unplug from the news. No news yeah, for 40 no days. News. Start there. No news. No rate, No cheating. Try that for 40 days. Just as a... Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> just as a start. Oh, uh, yeah. I could get behind that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and you can ask yourself, has it improved your life? A lot of this is, you know, just uh, a critical thinking. 
criticism gets a big black eye. Yeah, and, and right. And we've talked about this too. And I just mentioned that sort of in passing, but I don't. I shouldn't make so light of things because I I do think because I do see people you know who will blow up their life. You know, they'll get a divorce or they'll quit a job, and I often wonder. I think. Is that really, was that really this big thing? What was the problem or what was bothering you when there's so many small things that you can start with and just try? I mean, the stakes seem lower, but I think sometimes they're more significant. It's sometimes the things that seem small um, that are, are more pleasing. You don't, you don't, you may not need to change your whole life. Right. Just changing a few small things, you might go, oh. Well, actually, I'm really happy with 90%, and it was just this one corner that, for this whatever reason, was sort of bothering me. And if I get that a little bit better, then, you know, yeah, tune another string. Yeah, tune, tune another, another string. Like that. Right? Like that. Tune, tune another one, string. One string at a time. One string at a time. Wes Cecil and Milo Redwood. I am running out of time, but I do want to um, end with something that uh, has al- I've always been impressed with um, – not knowing Milo, but uh, on Wes's lecture series, it seems that um, I don't know if you do this on purpose or not, but there are there is usually a recommendation for reading, and it may be you know, and I, I'm reluctant to say this, but it's like when I have people come in and play music. It's not it's not the music Desert Island music. It's not that one shining thing that I'm recommending. But is there something? that you've read that you would recommend uh, for the audience to read? You go first. Well, just because I just read it, I'm going to say 1984. If you haven't read 1984, George Orwell in a while, read it. But but by the way, note that the book is told retrospectively. The society that the main character is living in has failed. And so that's important to note because some people miss this. Otherwise, I mean, it's a hugely depressing book, but there it, it doesn't end that way. So, just as a note, some, so, but yeah, 1984. It's very. It's there's a lot of good material in there to think about. Ah, uh, let's see. Uh, anything Greek? <laughs> Lucian, the satirist Lucian. Oh, definitely. If you can find them, eight volumes. Uh, funny, accessible, all that. But I would say uh, thus. But, Zarathustra, uh, Nietzsche, yeah. Nietzsche. Um, and then believe it or not, Tao Te Ching, find a translation that rings for you because there could easily be a hundred or more translations. So find one of those. And then whatever you do, don't read uh, Max Stirner. Don't read him. <laughs> what's, what's it called? The Ego and its, uh, its Own. Yeah, yeah, don't read that. That was one I, I would tell you, don't read that because you'll wreck your life if you read that one. So stay away. <laughs> From Max Turner. And I'll take your word for that. And um, I'm hoping, hopefully, there'll be uh, plenty of people out there reading 1984 and uh, Lucian, by the way. <laughs> Maybe a bit of a stretch, but we'll hope for the best here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to thank both of you. It's been uh, very fun talking yeah, to you. you. And it's uh, just a beautiful thing about having community radio is uh, to have people like yourselves come in and just talk talk about what's on your mind. It's been a pleasure to have both of you. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you.